We're going to continue in our series from great to good. And if you've missed any of the previous weeks, I would encourage you to go back and have a listen to them as what we're setting out to do within this series is to talk about the difference between greatness and goodness within our culture that celebrates that which is great, but can often forget what it means to be good within the process. Now, last week, David unpacked this idea of rest and its significance for our lives in a world that thinks we simply should do more, should be more. And David was helping us understand that we can be still in rest and that we can not be identified just by our achievements. But that for us as, as humans, that we're loved despite of what we do because God loves us as we're made in his image, not just by what we produce. And, and I think it's a timely message and it's one we all need to listen to. But there is still the flip side to that conversation. Because the reality is, is that we all spend chunks of our lives working for a wide variety of things. Not just jobs for money to provide, but we spend our lives working and building family units. We invest our lives into various relationships and neighborhoods. We even work to build a type of community within the church. And so work is a part of our lives. But how we approach all these different areas of what we're building is going to depend on what we set as the end goal and how we define what is good. Now, it's important to note that at the start of Genesis, in the beginning of the Bible, that God is a God of work. You see, the Genesis narrative is not a journal entry about the weather conditions, but it's a story about God that is at work creating within the world, and it's work that is seen as good. Things that we work for cannot be bad if a part of what God does is work, but the greatest mistake that people can have in their lives is to work for something that is senseless. They can do work that's done in vain, and it's work, ultimately, that takes place apart from God, which leads us to a story that David mentioned a couple weeks ago that's found within Genesis chapter 11. And it's a famous story if you've grown up within the church. It's the story of the Tower of Babel, which says this in verses 1 to 9. It says, now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there all over the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Now, before unpacking this text, I want to start with a bit of a thought experiment to help us understand how our thinking as people has been conditioned. And the first question that I want to ask is, is the tower built in Babel a good tower? You see, how we answer this question exposes our assumptions about what good or great actually means and how we're defining it. So let's walk this out in practice more on a personal note. Is your house good? The house that you're living in, that you're sitting in, is it good? Now, think about adding about a thousand square feet to your house. Does that new expansion make your house better? Why? 
Let's continue this. Which building is the better one? Is the Calgary Tower a good building at 191 meters or is the Stratosphere in Las Vegas at 350 meters a better building? Why? Who's the better business person? Is it Jeff Bezos of Amazon or is it Heather Reisman of Indigo and Chapters? Well, why? I think you see where this is going, that how we define greatness and what we stamp as good culturally exposes our assumptions about what that means. Chances are that your natural assumption was to go bigger or wealthier in how you answered what made something better. But let's make it personal again for a moment. If you had to guess which church is a better church, if I told you there's a small building in Maryland that seats about 100 people or a 7,500 person auditorium in Chicago, which one would you say is the better building? You see, that small building in Maryland is the church that Eugene Peterson led at and the other is Willow Creek where Bill Highballs led. So we have to ask the question, does something simply become good because of how it appears? Or does it go much deeper than that? The reality about all the questions that I've just asked is that we have to stop and ask about what are their intentions? What are the values? How were they built? And for what purpose? Or how are they behaving? Because the truth is, is that we have the same amount of data for each comparison I just mentioned. It's just about size. But we can get blinded to the cultural thought that bigger must mean better or it must mean it's good. And this is the struggle in how we all can view various things within our lives. So back to the story of Babel for a moment. You see, what we see in this story is that these people are living post-flood. Just a few verses ago, God has promised to not flood the earth again. And he's restated the blessing that was found in the beginning of Genesis, that they're to go and to be fruitful and multiply. They're to go and to create and to work within the world around them. And only two chapters later, we find them going to build a city and they have an opportunity to work for something. And what their first response is, is to not trust God and to begin to work and build something on their own. How do we know that? Because what we see is that the people immediately grab hold to the modern technology around them and they begin to build something and work towards something that puts them as humans as the focus. They want to be made famous. They want their names to be known. But I also think what's going on here is they're actually not trusting the promise of God to not flood the earth again. So what they're doing is they're taking matters into their own hands and they're building something themselves up high away from, away from danger. And this is significant culturally. Because what happened within the ancient world was that most of the power was kept within the divine realm. But it was shared across various different gods at the time. And, and so what would be seen in that time is that the people would rely on Baal for crops and for their livelihood. And they would rely on the Queen of Heaven, Ishtar, for their families. And they even relied on political alliances with other nations and their specific deities for their own personal security. And so what people did, and they still do today, is they rely on what they think has power. If you want to see what we believe has power, simply look at what we rely on, which in a lot of cases is our technology, our wealth, and maybe even just ourselves personally and our hard work that we believe is going to bring us success and comfort. Now, this is exactly what is happening within this Babel account. They're essentially stating that it's the power to the people, that they can build something great themselves and ignore what God has called them to because they have the personal means to do it. They actually don't need God. 
And if you ask me, it sounds a little bit like our Western world at moments. So, at the end of the day, is the Tower of Babel a good tower? Structurally, maybe it was. But it becomes problematic because it's a story about the desire for humans to be great ourselves and to build ourselves up and to not consider anything else. You see it in the language of the people in Babel. It's this desire for them to be enshrined, to build something so majestic that they will be known, that they don't have to scatter, that they can stay safe in this one space, which is all self-preservation language. But what would have happened if they actually completed Babel and set out to what they thought they were going to do, but one day Babel collapsed? Or what would have happened when someone built something larger? Now, hopefully you saw the irony in this story that they want to build something so grand and high into the sky, yet God still must come down in order to see it. But in all of this lies the problem of the pursuit of culture's definition of what is great, which is and appears in most cases to simply just be the pursuit of more, to gather more. But the reality is, is that more can never be an end goal because it's trivial. It's an endless pursuit of collecting for the self when the work of God within scripture is going to be one of distributing. And now often people read the language that when God comes down and says nothing's going to be impossible for them, that God is somehow nervous about the work that they're doing or that it's something that we're to strive for again, which I've heard in other sermons before. But this is not a compliment from God at this point in time. It's a critique. You see, God's concern is about their motivating drive behind what they are building. They're building to not get flooded or to show their greatness. And they ultimately have no ethics guiding them. And so humanity doing whatever they want with no goodness is not going to end up with something good. Which helps us understand that the motives on why and how we build and work are important to God. So what we learn from Babel is that one of the greatest work projects within the ancient history is actually a story of utter disaster, as there was an enormous amount of energy concentrated in building a tower that ultimately shattered a community that we're still trying to recover from. So what we learn is that we can know how to build a lot of things with what's around us, but it doesn't mean we should or it doesn't even necessarily mean that it will be good at the end. I mean, you can have a medical textbook and all the knowledge of how to be healthy, but simply having that knowledge doesn't make you a healthy person. It has to be acted upon. You can know what it means to follow Jesus, but just because you have the knowledge doesn't mean everything done after it is automatically good. We can have the means, but we must do the right thing to achieve building something good. Goodness is not something that happens on accident. It's always going to be an intentional work. And so the wrestle of how things are built isn't just even going to stop here. In a few more chapters, what you're going to see if you were to read along is you're going to see Abraham do the same thing and ignore the way of God and take matters into his own power and try to create the blessing of a family promised of God by himself. And this story continues today in our current reality. Eugene Peterson says this, he says, Western culture takes up where Babel left off and defies human effort as such. The machine is the symbol of this way of life which attempts to control and manage. Technology promises to give us control over the earth and over people, but the promise is not fulfilled. 
lethal automobiles, ugly buildings, and ponderous bureaucracies ravage the earth and empty lives of meaning. Structures become more important than the people who live in them. Machines become more important than the people who use them. We care more for our possessions with which we hope to make our way in the world than with our thoughts and dreams which tell us who we are in the world. You see, it's not just about the ends and where we end up and forgetting the means of how we get there, but it's rather about who we're becoming as we aim towards an end goal. And it's going to require intentionality. It's, it's going to happen by knowing even what we're aiming for. It's going to happen by taking God seriously and paying attention to who he is and what he does and ordering our lives in response to that reality and not some other. Which leads us to Psalm 127 in the first two verses, which in a few short words creates such a profound statement for us to reflect upon, which says this, it says, Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat. For he grants sleep to those he loves. See, what we instantly see within this psalm is that there's a right and a wrong way for us to work and to build and to create within the world around us. And this psalm is, is posing a warning in many ways about the values and the foundations that we build upon. Because if God's not a part of building the house, the builder is ultimately just building shacks. If God's not guarding the city, the guards may as well just take a nap. It becomes useless to rise early and to go to bed working your fingers to the bone. Because to reiterate David last week, God loves giving rest to those he loves. I mean, as a culture, we would be good to constantly come back and study Psalm 127 on a regular basis because it balances the tension of work and what we do to remind us that it's not just about us creating sheer activity and production, but it's also not just about complete passivity. Rather, there's this call for us to participate alongside what God is doing within the world. And so the wrestle for us as a church community is what type of community are we becoming as we continue to build this thing called church? Because we can build what to the world could look like a great church. We could create something with all the resources at our fingertips that may even appear good, but if we're to do it without God, then everything we set out to do will be in vain. And ultimately, it's going to lead us to exhaustion and burnout and a shallow attempt at what God is really seeking to do within the world. I love how Shane Claiborne challenges this in his book, The Irresistible Revolution, where he says, too often, we just do what makes sense to us and ask God to bless it. Rather than do what makes sense to us and ask God's blessing, we do better to surround ourselves with those whom God promises to bless and then we need not ask God's blessing. It's just what God does. And what Shane's alluding to in there is this Sermon on the Mount that's found within the New Testament, where Jesus teaches about how he works within the world and the people that are blessed within the world, which we should pay close attention to because it's exactly how we are to work within the world as well. Which, as a quick study of Matthew 5, where you can find this, is that we're to be identified as people of meekness, as people who work with God for justice, 
to be people of mercy and pure in heart and, and to be peacemakers. And we see more further calls to be the salt and the light that shows a different way of behaving that values people, not just as a means to an end, but as, a, as valuable creations of God. We see this call to be creative in our response to being wronged and not seeking revenge. There's a challenging call to love our enemies and to seek God's reality on earth and to not just pursue cultures storing up of treasures, but to make an eternal impact in how and what we build here and now. And what I find so fascinating is that Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount with this reminder uh, that is saying, you've got to pay attention to who and what you're building with. And he says, if you're going to build on these values of the Sermon on the Mount, is it's like you're building on a foundation that is a rock. And a rock that does not fall no matter what storms come up against it. But to not build on these principles is to build in vain. And it's to build on a foundation of sand and it's going to have it collapse when storms hit because it's done without God. Now, to circle back to Psalm 127 for a moment with this thinking in mind. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter how much culture rewards our work if God doesn't. In fact, the psalmist would suggest that our relentless and compulsive working habits that society rewards are signs of a weak faith and pride within the follower of Jesus. Because to pursue anything without God at the center is to suggest that God cannot be trusted to accomplish his will and that we can ultimately rearrange things with our own efforts. We could call this the Babel mentality. The Babel mentality is anytime we set out to do something without considering how God desires to build them and for us to participate with him in it. We can set out in our own efforts and work tirelessly to build family units without trusting God to lead us and care for them. In this mentality, one mistake as a parent or a sibling or an aunt, uncle, grandparent can become earth shattering because we've elevated ourselves with a savior complex. That we can do this on our own and that we ultimately don't trust God to follow through. When the reality is, is that God is ready and wanting to work with you on building a family unit that shows the world a new way of life. Desiring a strong family unit is not a bad thing, but how we go about it matters. The Babel mentality shows up when we seek to build a legacy through what we do for our jobs, that we get up early and we go to bed late building something that will make us well known and wealthy and comfortable even if at times it means mistreating a few people or twisting a story slightly to make sure we look good to climb the corporate ladder. It's the pursuit of bigger and better as the definition of good, but ultimately it's, it happens because it's a lack of trust that God will take care of us. So we believe we must take care of ourselves on our own and do what it takes. Wouldn't it be amazing if rather than that, that we were known for treating others in our jobs as people of integrity and humility and mercy and love? I mean, again, getting promoted at work is not a bad thing, but how we build that portfolio matters. The Babel mentality can also show up when our desire is to build a church community that simply just gets bigger numerically. And we can do that by using marketing and different methods that are in place to simply attract people to a product that we can create with the modern technology around us. But at the end of the day, it lacks trust in Jesus's words that he will build his church. And what we do in those moments is we begin to take matters into our own hands. Instead of us focusing on how we treat those around us and how we serve and love our neighbors, how we can meet the needs of the city or how we can stand with the vulnerable, 
And again, I reiterate, having a church grow numerically is not a bad thing, but how we build it matters. Because it's possible to build a church community that from a world standpoint could be celebrated, but ultimately it could be built in vain if it's not concerned itself with the ways of Jesus. And this is exactly the critique that Jesus has in the temple in Mark chapter 11, in verses 15 to 17, which says this, it says, On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now, this is a commonly misunderstood story, as the assumption is, is that Jesus is mad that they're selling things within the church, within the temple courts. But that actually isn't the issue here. What Jesus is actually doing is he's going after the temple because what's happening appears culturally to be good within the temple. All is set up exactly as it was supposed to work within the day. But what has gotten Jesus upset is that he's seen people mistreat the world around them. And then what they're doing is they're coming into the temple to show off their goodness. And this is what Jesus is referring to by calling the place a den of thieves or a den of robbers. Jesus in this moment is referring to a text within Jeremiah where the den of robbers has been mentioned again, where in Hebrew you see it talking about robbing with violence. And so in Jeremiah, the den of robbers was in reference to the temple having become an oppressive system that refused to practice justice and exploited the most vulnerable people. And so a den of robbers, a den of thieves, is where people go after they have robbed the people. It's not where they do the robbing specifically. And so Jesus is stating that they have built a system without God because they ignore those outside the temple. It's an oppressive system. And then they come back into the temple to appear religious. It was ultimately something that was built in vain. Jesus in this moment is accusing the powerful and the wealthy and the elites that their everyday injustice is what made them robbers and they thought that the temple was their safe house. And I like how Bruxy Cavey interprets this story in his book, The End of Religion, where Bruxy says that the religious system of Israel, like any religious system today, was repeatedly used as a spiritual hideout for people with a guilty conscience, rather than change how they lived. The people of Israel simply added a little religion to their lives to keep everything balanced. Like the Godfather going to Mass on Sunday morning or going to confession before returning to his life of crime. Religious systems make it all too easy for self-centered people to find their comfort in familiar rituals without experiencing a change of heart or committing to a life of love. It's another way of saying that you can continue to build and work on your own power rather than trusting in the promises of God and working alongside God to reveal his life to the world. We can just add sprinkles of it to our lives, but ignore the larger call. And so I wanna wrap up our time by looking at one more story of Jesus within Matthew chapter 23, where Jesus again makes a critique of how things are built, looking at verses one to 12, which says, then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. 
They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father, and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And if you've been tracking, this story almost doesn't even need comment as again we see this critique of a system that can be built for God even, but can be done without Him. And Jesus says, if you want to be great, you will serve. You'll put aside your pride, your desire to be known and seated in the greatest spots at dinners and banquets, and you will practice what you preach. And what we preach is Christ and Christ crucified, a king who came to serve rather than be served. And so to live out the way and to build things in the way of Jesus is going to require us to have a resistor mentality. It's going to force us to ask different questions. It's going to require us to celebrate different things because whatever you celebrate is what creates your culture around you. And it's going to require us to learn to be okay and live with goodness that may appear to be out of sync with society at times. Sometimes we just focus on where we end up, but how we're going to get there matters. Because you may have built something upon sand and in vain if God is not a part of it. If you want to be great, you will be known by how you serve. And so I'll end our time with one last quote from Eugene Peterson, who says, Christian worship gathers the energy and focuses the motivation that transform us from consumers who use work to get things into people to those who are intimate and in whom work is a way of being in creative relationship with one another. Such work can be done within the structure of any job, career, or profession. As Christians do the jobs and tasks assigned to them in what the world calls work, we learn to pay attention to and practice what God is doing in love and justice, in helping and healing, in liberating and cheering. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. And so as you go from wherever you find yourself, would you labor with God and not in vain? Would your life be identified by what you do with God rather than what you achieve alone? Would you build communities of peace and love rather than competition and comparison? Would we be a people marked by those who build differently, who value meekness, humility, justice, and serving as our definitions of what it means to be good? And would we have ears to hear God's voice as he leads us, as we continue to work together as a community. Amen.